Mac Power Users, episode 314, MPU Live, recorded on April 2nd, 2016. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Welcome, David, to another live show. Hello, Katie Floyd. You know, I love doing these live shows so much. I don't know why. It just makes me happy. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things about these live shows is we never really know what's going to happen until we start putting the agenda together for the show, uh, because we don't know what the agenda is going to be. It's whatever our listeners write in. And I go through the, the feedback inbox, see what people are interested in talking about. And that's what we talk about this episode. Yeah, we got some good feedback this week. And uh, and we also have a guest. Yeah, so I want to like go-, go ahead, David. <laughs> OK, I want to welcome to the show our friend Joe Bulig. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David and Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Joe, I've been a little bit of a fan of yours for a while, I have to admit. Uh, Joe's over at JoeBulig.com, J-O-E-B-U-H-L-I-G.com. We'll put it in the show notes so you can check it out. Joe's an author, podcaster. He makes he makes his money, pays for his shoes, uh, making websites for people like big fancy web and web commerce sites. Uh, but he's also a productivity geek like the rest of us. And I, I just really like the uh, signal to noise ratio you've got over your website. You've got good content um, on a fairly regular basis. And uh, I just wanted everybody to to get to know you. So we thought we'd have you on, on the show today. Uh, and one of the things that I like that you've talked about quite a bit lately is review. And uh, we come up against this once in a while when we talk about OmniFocus or some task system, uh, the importance of review. And this is something you've written on quite a bit. And and if you're out there and you're feeling a little frazzled, uh, I think review is something that everybody could benefit from, no matter which application you're using. So let's talk a little bit about what the concept is of review. And if you're using the GTD methodology, it it is one of the big pillars. You know, you've got to you've got to capture your tasks, you've got to organize your tasks. But then one of the big ones is reviewing your task. It's not only do you have to do your task, but you're supposed to do a regular review. So, what is review, and why is that so important? Yeah, I, so whenever you're getting into, <laughs> I run into this quite a bit with some folks. Whenever you first start getting into review, a lot of people start asking, "Well, well, what's the?" point. <laughs> Why would I do that? Right. And the thing that I always try to tell people is that it's impossible for you to trust that system unless it's fully up to date. And the only way to keep it up to date is to go through it and make sure it's up to date. Like one of the, I put a tweet out, this is probably two or three weeks ago at this point, but I simply asked the question, you know, if you change the name of it from review to get myself up to date, like if you just think of it that way, uh, you're usually more likely to do it, it seems like. And that, that's what a lot of people were echoing is, you know, if if I think about it is I'm going to take some time, make sure that all of my projects have all of the tasks assigned to them that should, then you're more likely to to go ahead and do it. But without that review, it just seems like, at least for me, whenever I decide to skip, say, a weekly review or a daily, I'm a review Nazi. If you read much of my <laughs> read much of my site, I'm talking about them all the time. But it, it's the thing that I guess keeps me aligned with what it is that I'm trying to do. So I've got the longer term missions, the longer term goals. And without without that process of going through it, at least weekly, I'm going through some stuff daily some, and another set monthly and yearly. And I, I'm always going through some some realignment sessions, I guess is what I would call them. 
And, and unless I'm doing that, I tend to just lose stuff. <laughs> I'm not ADHD, but there's days that I just have a hard time seeing that I'm staying focused from the long term perspective. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, the, I guess the background on this is this really did. The first time I ever heard of the concept was when I read the GTD book and it sounded like something I could skip over, honestly, the first time I heard about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea is you've got these list of projects and you need to occasionally, you know, go through the stack. And I think, you know, they were talking about like in the context of pieces of paper at the time it was kind of before the software tools existed. And and you would take once in a while, you would stop and just look at the project. Do I need this project anymore? Look at the tasks I've got on this project. How many of those are still relevant or can be scratched out or are there new ones that need to be added? And I believe, and somebody will tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that David Allen concept was like once a week, I think that you were supposed to go through the whole stack of projects. That sounds familiar. And, um, and I, so I, and it sounds like a lot of work and, and it is, but it's really worth it for all the reasons Joe was just saying. I mean, once you start spending a little time, looking at the projects it does bring clarity and and if you do it with designated time to say okay i'm just going to think about this project it really kind of helps you bring order to the chaos yeah and one of the things i would point out there too is that it seems like when you first get into gtd this is a really foreign concept and, and it's hard to get your head around what what it is that you should be doing from a technical tactical standpoint of okay what does that mean is doing a review just looking over the project like what what am i supposed to do when i look at it and i think that there's some level of uh, i guess a need to be in the gtd mindset and start having like you got to have capture down you got to have process down you got to have organized down you got to have all of that stuff fairly in, in like in concrete before you can really comprehend what the review is going to do for you. I think you really have to be into that quite a bit before it has the value that I think that we're talking about. Because there, there's some level of needing to comprehend the bigger picture and be able to take a step back from it to, to get that higher perspective before the value of it really comes through. And, and honestly, by the time you get to that point, you're probably exhausted. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You've, you've done the whole capture thing. You've gone through it all. You're like, okay, okay, I can, I can cheat on the last one because I've done enough. And I guess the point that we're all making is, man, that is like where the pot of gold is in my feeling. Because when I do a review and when, I, when I'm up to date with reviews, I feel better inside. It's like it's palpable. And Whenever I feel myself feeling like I'm losing control and the plates are spinning out of control and things are going to start crashing, if I just stop and spend an hour or two doing the review process, um, I feel I usually I usually I get things much more under control with that process. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joe, when I'm sitting down to do a review, if if I'm new to the concept or or maybe I've been laxed on on doing my reviews and I'm trying to get back into the habit of it, what am I trying to accomplish in a review? What are the things that I'm looking for? What are the things that I'm trying to tune up in that review process? What are what am I trying to get out of a review? Yeah, um, with mine and the best way that I know to come at it is to. First, make sure all your inboxes are clear. I mean, I'm going to assume that people understand what the concept of an inbox is here. Um, whenever you have multiple places where you collect information, say email or a physical inbox, I for me, I have to make sure that those are all empty first, because otherwise, whenever I'm going through all of my projects later within the review, 
I have potentially undecided commitments sitting out there that mean that my system's not fully up to date at that point. So for me, it all starts with going through all of my inboxes, making sure those are empty, making sure those are clear. And then once those are all clear, then I can step on to the next part of just going through all of the projects and all of the tasks that I currently have. So for me, uh, I, I'm a big OmniFocus user. And one of the things that I tend to do with OmniFocus is some of the scripting. And one of the scripts I wrote, because one of the, the issues that people run into with OmniFocus is you can't really schedule a review in OmniFocus. It's got the the periods that go through that, you know, if you check, if you say that you reviewed it today, then one week from today, it can come back for review again. And the, the whole functionality behind reviewing within OmniFocus is great. But the, the issue is I tend to schedule my reviews, which means that that little flag on the side in OmniFocus drives me nuts <laughs> all week <laughs> long if I don't, uh, if I don't go in and review those and those things can come up because it's just not on a schedule. So I actually wrote a script that would let you uh, tell it when you normally do your uh, weekly, monthly and annual reviews as far as day and month and day of the week and such. And then I can just run that script and then it realigns everything to the correct day. And then it'll show up for me. I do mine on Friday mornings uh, because like David was talking about that refreshing feeling of doing a review uh, there's a lot of value in that to me going into a weekend because then I can have the clarity of mind and I don't have to worry about some of the stressors of something still being on my mind whenever I go into the weekend. So I like to do that right before the weekend. So one of my first things I do after clearing out my inboxes is I run that script to realign all of my projects. And then that tells me, okay, these projects are the ones that are due for review today. And in for me, I'm just going through in OmniFocus, each one of those projects, and I'm making sure that I'm still going to do the project. So the first question is, is this project still valid? Am I still going to do it? That requires some reflection and honesty with yourself. I don't know how many projects I have in there. It's like, I just, I want to do it. I'm going to put it on pause. I know I want to get back to it, but it's not going to happen right now. I just, if I'm honest with myself, it's just not going to happen right now. And so that's the step that I start with is, okay, is the project actually still valid or not? Once I've decided that, okay, yes or no, if it's a yes, that it's still valid, then I'm just going to go through each one of those actions within that project and make sure that I haven't missed checking one off or I've got, say, may something needs to be added to it. I'm waiting on something. What is it that's the next step in that? Most of the time I have two or three tasks in there yet that at least gives me a starting point for it. But then it's just a process of going through each one of them, making sure it's up to date. And whenever I feel like that project's up to date, market is reviewed and go on to the next one. Um, yeah. And well, that's I, the big picture you, of it. And you know, that whole concept of review is a place where it's okay to, you know, to get out the long knives and kill projects is something that is super useful. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons people feel like their task management system or their life is out of control is because they've taken on all these commitments and they haven't stopped. And they, they may have a commitment they accepted six months ago and they've never reviewed it. They never stopped to say, is this still something I want or can do? Or is this something that's even still relevant? And there is kind of a cathartic experience of going through and saying, okay, you know what? This was a good idea, but no longer is it. And I'm going to kill it. Or this is something that, is just not going to happen given my current life commitments. So I'm going to put that out six months and review it again. And in six months, I still don't have time. Then I'll kill it then. But just being able to do that, it just clears out all that baggage and it makes it so much easier to get your work done. I, 
I am, um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of people who haven't tried these review techniques to, to get on the bandwagon and give it a shot. One of the other things that I find about review is it's also, I use it as an opportunity for a brain dump because I have a bad habit of tending to keep a lot of things in my head. Although I try to get as much of it as I can in my task management system, just the little things tend to keep floating in my head. And when I've got a project up on the screen and it's the only thing up on the screen as I'm sitting there reviewing it, uh, it's an opportunity for me to take all of those small things that have been sitting in my head that I tell myself it's no problem. I'm going to be able to keep these in my head. I don't need to put these in my task management system. These are almost too small for me to put in my task management system. It's an opportunity for me to think, what do I still have left to do? What do I still have lingering out there? You know, let me go ahead and enter these. I'm just right here. It's it's a good opportunity for me to do a brain dump as well. Yeah, yeah. And also, as you're looking at the projects, you'll see, oh, I should have done this on that project or that project. Or, you know, and it also it also inspires new tasks uh, on specific projects. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like if you come to like when you're going through your uh, your projects and you come across the someday maybe lists, because, again, I'm going to go through those every week. Something I found is I, I can have a lot of new ideas for those as well. Some of those are business ideas, articles to write, uh, podcast episodes to record, those types of things. Or if I'm working on for a client, uh, there's a lot of user interface or user experience design elements that I want to pull in. And I, I just keep lists of those uh, in, in there as well. But something I found is if I shuffle the order of those things in that list that each week I can kind of come up with some newer ideas each time just by changing the order of them. Because yeah, if I go see, through that it sounds the a little order, crazy to me, Joe. I saw I that know. you have a script for that, right? <laughs> yes. So I found that if I was going through the same going through it the same order every single time I knew what was coming next in the list. So it wasn't helping me come up with newer ideas every time because there's something like, okay, so you're going to get a little philosophical here, but the, the idea of what an idea is of connecting two dots, that's a general idea. I guess if you boil down creativity in a, in a nutshell is connecting two dots that haven't been connected before. And the best way that I know to connect two dots that haven't been connected to before is to take two that already exist, say two items on my my someday maybe list and put them in a different order every time. Then I'm putting two things that are potentially going to connect that haven't been connected before. Does that make sense? That's a really crazy high level idea. Um, but I actually just wrote a script for OmniFocus to shuffle the items on my someday maybe list. That way I can try to come up with those. So, so Joe, I'll tell you one thing that I would like someone at home listening to take from this. If you're using OmniFocus, it's easy. They've got review built in. Um, but one power tip for OmniFocus users would be uh, don't go with the David Allen review everything every week. I don't think that makes sense. Uh, what, if you go into OmniFocus, every time you create a new project in the inspector, you can actually set the review frequency. So I've got some projects that only get come up for review once every six months and I've got some that come up every few days and everything in between. Um, so just uh, be mindful of that. And uh, if you see something coming up too often or not enough, change that frequency as you go through your reviews. And that makes it a lot easier to keep up with it. Now I don't do the Friday morning thing. I've just got to, whenever something comes up for review, I review it and that way they're dispersed. And, and I feel like I do a better job because if I do them all at once, I'll be really good for the first seven or eight. And then after that, they get pretty sloppy. So um, there, there's my tips from OmniFocus. But what if you're not an OmniFocus user? What are some good ideas for someone to kind of implement a review methodology? 
Yeah. One of the ways that I, I tell people to do it is to, you have to have a list of projects somewhere. If you're implementing GTD in some way, there there's a list of projects somewhere. <laughs> that's, that's the way it typically works. Uh, so it's easy to just take that list, start at the top and work your way through it. Uh, one thing that is kind of a, a side note, I guess, it's kind of getting to be a bigger thing whenever you hear David talk about it, but he talks about checklists quite a bit as well. Uh, you know, like travel packing lists as well. There are a number of people, myself included, that you can go find uh, their weekly review checklist of just work through it top to bottom. Uh, here are all the things to go through during that weekly review. So one of those is, at least on mine, it says clear review perspective, which is the the perspective within OmniFocus that shows all those projects. Uh, if, if you don't have OmniFocus, you're not using that, you would just simply rename that to update all projects or review all projects, that, that type of thing. That's to me, that's yeah. all it would be. Yeah. Just create a task. I mean, it's not that. Yeah. Not that yeah. Hard. Don't, don't make it complicated. You see some of these systems are crazy complicated. I, I'm a big fan of boil it down and keep it simple. I, I don't want it to be too complicated. If it's too complicated, I won't do it when I'm sick. So that's <laughs> not something I want to do. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, well, Joe, um, I want everybody to go over to Joe Buley.com. Great website. Uh, Joe is not only a cool nerd, he's also a woodworker. So I got to respect that. And it's just great stuff people. over there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he did an interesting experiment. I'm not going to tell you about it. I want you to go read it on his website, but you know, you always re read about those guys who decide I'm going to give up on the QWERTY keyboard and learn Dvorak. You know, I've always heard of people like that. I've never actually talked to one. Joe's one of those guys. He switched over to Dvorak and he's got a fun experiment he did on his website. And uh, I know he's got another post coming up soon to talk about, you know, where that's all settled out. Uh, the stuff there on text and just a whole bunch of great stuff that our Mac power users listeners would love. So please everybody go check that out. And, uh, and Joe, thanks so much for helping us talk about review on the Mac power users. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you guys. Now, Joe, tell people a little bit about, cause I know you're doing some interesting stuff on your blog and I know you've got a, a book that you've written. So just take a quick minute and tell people about what that's all about. Oh, well, thank you for the time to do that. Uh, so the book is called Working with OmniFocus. You've heard me talk about it a little bit. Um, I would say if you are super pro user of OmniFocus, it's probably not for you. Um, it's more of a conceptual of how, how are some of these GTD principles and simplification, like I was talking about, how do all of these apply to the tool OmniFocus? Um, I actually had a, a couple folks who were Todoist users buy it and send me an email saying that it was helpful to them as well, uh, simply because I talk a lot about the principles behind why you do a lot of things in OmniFocus the way you do um, or the way that I do. It's primarily going through most of my system and how it works and then explaining the reasoning behind that. Um, so if you're interested in that, if you want to see a real deep dive with the reasoning behind why uh, on somebody's system, that would be a good place to start if you're getting into OmniFocus. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, Joe, it, not only do you explain why your system works, you also talk about kind of other ways to do things as well. So I, I feel like it's kind of a good starting point if you're not sure which way to zig or zag and um, just a nice little book. So check yeah. that out as well. Everybody. Yeah. One of the big premises that I had behind it whenever I wrote it was not to adopt someone else's system, but to use the principles to set up your own. Everybody's different. So <laughs> just learn from it and uh, and use that to develop your own instead of just trying to adopt somebody else's. Well, this is a big deal, this stuff. I mean, it's really hard. And, and if you can master it, it can really change what you can do with your life. So it's worth 
worth learning. Well, anyway, once again, Joe, thank you so much. Everybody head over to the website. In addition to the book and all the posts, there's also, you've got some, I think you've got some of your scripts there um, yep. as well. Yep. And you've yep. got a podcast you do yourself. That's very good. So everybody just go check it out. And, um, and thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, we've got a lot more stuff to talk about, but before we do, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Linode. Linode is a combination of high-performance SSD Linux servers spread across eight data centers around the world. This makes Linode a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get a server up and running in under a minute with plans starting at just $10 a month. You'll be able to choose your resources, Linux distro, and node location right from within the manager tool. And once you're up and running, you can easily deploy, boot, and resize your virtual server with just a few clicks. Linode servers offer industry-leading native SSD storage, powerful Intel E5 processors, which are the fastest you can get in the cloud market, and they have access to a 40 gigabit network with multiple levels of redundancy. They have an API that will allow you to easily automate tasks or develop custom applications in the cloud. Best of all, Linode's pricing tiers feature hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backup and node balancers. This means you'll never get a surprise bill. Linode has over 4,000 customers who are serviced by their friendly 24-7 support team. They're even open over holidays. Linode is committed to keeping up their infrastructure. For example, they've recently switched from Zen to KVM, and their latest Unix benchmark showed a 300% performance increase. So why should you use Linode? Well, it's great for tasks like running a private Git server, hosting a large database, running a mail server, operating powerful applications, and so much more. In fact, I bet you wouldn't be surprised to know that many of your favorite websites are up and running right now on Linode. As a listener of this show, you can sign up at linode.com MPU, and you'll not only be supporting us, but you will also get $20 towards any Linode plan. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose. So head on over to linode.com MPU, that's L-I-N-O-D-E dot MPU, to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit. Or just use the promo code MPU20 at checkout. That's MPU20 at checkout. Thanks so much to Linode for their support of Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So Katie, um, now that we're uh, we're back on a live show, we've got a little bit of stuff that's kind of news that we probably should be talking about. News? Like you, we don't do that here. Yeah, it's not usually our thing. We're you know, but but there's some user stuff that we want to talk about. And um and Lucy wrote in and um she talked about, you know, fixing your computer because someone calls you on the phone. Have you yeah, ever heard you, this scam before? Uh, actually I, I, I have. I've heard of a couple of people who have gotten uh hit with the scam before. And the way that it works is and Lucy says she works with a lot of senior citizens who like her, um they work with Max and she's hearing increasingly about them getting unsolicited phone calls and scams demanding money to fix problems with their computers. And, you know, everybody's having some kind of problem with their computer, especially senior citizens tend to get very frustrated with their computers. So, uh, you know, it's not uncommon. People can call and say, hey, they're having issues with their computers. I can help you fix that. And then what they're doing is maybe they're VPNing in, maybe they're getting access to your data, maybe they're doing something else. Maybe they're tricking you to a, a website to get you to download something or get you to download malware. Um, I know someone that this happened to 
um, where they were claiming to be like uh, uh, some side of a uh, type of support for I don't remember what it was, some kind of popular software, um, and got, actually got them to connect via. Um, you know, remote access to them and started downloading a bunch of files. And thankfully, they caught it and disconnected, but who knows how much they of information that they got. So it's, it's very scary out there. Um, but Lucy particularly wanted to know kind of what our thoughts were on antivirus software, something like malware bytes, um, and, and where we stood on that. Yeah, uh, on the opening point of this whole idea of telephone phishing, which is essentially what people are doing, um, it, it is a little scary because it, it's very convincing. I, and, you know, it's not just computers. Also, people will call you and say they're the IRS and, you know, you owe money and you need to give them your credit card. It's, it's just all these like crazy, terrible people in the world, uh, uh, preying on others. But, um, so just be aware of that, uh, with respect to virus software, uh, you know, here we're in 2016, I'm still not running it. How about you? Nope. Yeah. We've talked about this in the past on the show in general. Um, it's just not been much of an issue on the Mac and, you know, the hassle of dealing with it just never felt to me like it was worth it. And I'm not saying that everybody out there shouldn't run virus software. If you feel like you should, then you should, uh, please don't, you know, come talking to me if you don't run it and something bad happens. But, but I personally am not running virus software and I know that there's some out there and just, this is the news part of this part of uh, session. Um, we just had some news in the last month, uh, for the first time there was a ransomware released on the Mac. Yeah. And so there was a popular BitTorrent client. I, I want to say, I'm not a big BitTorrent person. So I, I is transmit, um, transmission, I, I, I think is transmission, what it was called. I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. And this was a pretty scary and pretty sophisticated attack. It, it basically happened at a time when transmission went through a major update. People were looking forward to this because it was the first update of the software in a long time. So it, it, it was suspiciously, um, suspect timing, suspiciously. Well, suspect. I mean, it, there you the, go. the bad guys are very smart. They they actually hacked into the website and they built a f a fake version of the app at, that had the ransomware stuff built into it. So not only did they make a fake version of the app, they managed to inject it into the the actual developer's website. And this was an open. I believe there's an open source or at least a part of open source um, part of the software. So it probably wasn't as hard to do, but. Well, and they were also able to inject the developer's certificate, a certificate in there, which might, and I'm getting probably the details wrong. We'll have all kinds of people write us. And if I can find a good write-up about exactly how this happened, in fact, I think I found one on the Malwarebytes blog. I'll, I'll post that in there. But the, the short version is people thought they were downloading this transmission BitTorrent client. And instead, what they got was they got a compromised one. And so it worked for, you know, like three days or so. And after three days, uh, this this malware was set to unpack. And what happened was it started scanning your hard drive and then encrypting files. Now, you've probably heard about things like this on the Windows operating system, like BitLocker is, a, is, is one that was fairly popular. And they popped up a message that said, hey, if you want your files back, um, you know, give me a bunch of money. And I, I don't know if people were really getting their files unencrypted if they paid. I, I doubt that they were. Yeah. But, and but the bottom line is you you lose all your data. And uh, we ha we have not gone on at great length on backups on the show for a while. Uh, but, you know, you need backups. Right. <laughs> and and, uh, and we mentioned this on a recent show. This is the second time we've kind of come up with this, but I think it's worth talking about twice. And Jim wrote in with feedback and he said, hey, um, actually, no, I'm sorry. This was, I think, in response to something I wrote on my website. 
Um, but uh, one of the things I had said is, you know, make sure you have a clone drive backup of your computer. And uh, Jim wrote in, hey, you know, make sure you don't keep those connected because ransomware can go through the directory and mount those encrypted uh, and encrypt those backup drives as well if they're connected to your computer. And um, that's an excellent point. So having an occasional mirror drive that you just unplug and stick in a drawer is not such really a bad idea. You know, talking about OmniFocus tasks, make one that say once a week, you know, pull the drive out of the drawer, plug it in and just do a, you know, mirror backup. Right. And I know I've already seen some people mention, and we probably will have some people write in if we don't say something and mention, you know, don't these people kind of get what they deserve? I mean, they were downloading a BitTorrent client for, but keep in mind, BitTorrents can be used for, you know, BitTorrent clients can be used for all kinds of things, not just downloading um, software that may have questionable um, uh, lineage, but for for all for all sorts <laughs> of purposes, both both legitimate and and questionable purposes as well. Um, certainly, the the malware companies are going to target more popular software. And do I think it's probably a little more likely that you're going to download something that might be more infected if you're uh, on these types of sites? Yeah, I think you've probably got a little bit better chance, but this could happen to anything. I mean, we keep seeing um, compromised versions of Adobe Flash. I mean, Adobe Flash, which is a very legitimate site, a very legitimate piece of software that's used o- all over the web, unfortunately, but you're getting, people are clicking on links that are not, you know, just slightly off or links that have redirected them to certain places and are downloading something that they think to be a very perfectly legitimate product Turns out that's not what it is. So these types of things are going to happen, and I, I think I think there's a couple of prongs approach that you have to have to protect yourself from something like this. Um, the first thing is just education. Be aware that these types of things are out there, um, and and to be very very careful. Be very careful about the links that you're going to. You know, understand that just because you're a Mac user doesn't mean that you're immune to these types of things. If if you're clicking on a link, be very aware of the site that you're going to. Is this the site that you intended to go to? Um, if you're downloading an application and something doesn't quite seem right, if you're being asked for your password, every time you're asked for your administrative password, you need to stop and think about why am I putting my password in? Is this something that I really want to do? Did I really want to install this piece of software? What am I doing here? I think sometimes we just tend to put these things on on autopilot. Uh, Jim also wrote in with a good tip that said, you know, does everybody on your computer really need to be an admin? Um, you know, I know it's certainly convenient for us to to run as admins, but maybe not everybody on your system needs to be an admin, and maybe your everyday user account doesn't need to be an admin because that can create all kinds of problems. That once something uh, gets in, that it can create you know additional problems because once you get in and get admin access, uh, you know it's it's opening the door to a whole bunch of other possibilities. Um, we had a, an interesting question in the live chat uh, from Ad Liberator. Would Backblaze backup be safe from ransomware? Um, I think know, yes I and know. no. Um, I think from a couple of different perspectives. On on one hand, I think it would be safe from the perspective of it's not on your computer. So it's definitely an additional layer of protection and that it's not on your computer. And so it's not going to be able to jump into the backblaze and then start encrypting those types of things. But I think the the problem with that is, is you may not immediately know what files on your computer are compromised. So as the files on your computer are compromised, as backblaze starts syncing those, you're going to soon start, and this is true with any 
sync service, whether it's Backblaze yeah. or Dropbox or one of those other ones, you're going to immediately start start syncing those now compromised files and overwriting your good ones. Now, Backblaze has a feature where you can go back in time and, and restore old versions of files. I think it's 30 days. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I think it's 30 days or so. Um, but the question is, when do you find the problem? Yeah. And like in this case, the, the software ran fine for three days. So you would even have trouble realizing when it all started. Right. And I don't blame the people using the software. I mean, I don't think they went to the developer's website. They downloaded the software. And, I mean, it's just like, I don't know what they could have done to avoid this. Um, but, you know, it's not like when you go onto a BitTorrent and you down because I first heard it was BitTorrent related. I thought, oh, somebody downloaded like a... um. Uh, you know, they go on BitTorrent and they download like the Adobe suite, you know, and it's of course some corrupted version that someone has inserted a ransomware in, but this was the actual software to get onto BitTorrent. So right. I don't think, I don't really blame them, but the fact is it's just a good reminder, everybody make sure you've got a good backup system. Maybe we'll go back and cover backup. It's been years since we've really done a good show on backup, but there's a lot of options out there now. And um, you, you really should have a good backup system in place with redundancy and, and so if this ever does happen to you, it's just an inconvenience and not, you know, oh, my gosh, we just lost all of our pictures kind right. of problem. And I think there's also, you know, while we're talking about backup, I also think there's a good place uh, to ha talk, have a conversation about archive versus backup, because an archive yeah. is not necessarily a, a backup. I, I had a post on my blog that I talked about where I made a very silly mistake um, uh, and I made it last summer where I you know, back over the summer, I was having all those issues where my computer was going back and forth to Apple and I was having to nuke and pave a bunch of times. And I accidentally didn't restore a file from one of my backups. And it just happened to be the encrypted disk image where I keep all of my most important, you know, tax and financial information. And it of, of all the, the the individual files that I somehow missed and forgot to restore, uh, you know, of course it would be this one, you know, the, the the master super file that I really can't afford to lose. And because it's it's this file that I typically only access around tax time when I'm getting ready to do my taxes and all, it's not something that I would have noticed was was gone until, you know, probably months down the line. And it was only because I had to go look something up that I realized, oh my gosh, the file wasn't there. And, you know, by that time, more than 30 days had passed. It wasn't in my Backblaze archive. Um, it wasn't in my Dropbox archive anymore. You know, my my time machine was gone because all of these restores had, had wiped it out. The only way that I was able to recover this file is because I had made, you know, we kind of call it the, the shelf backup or the drawer backup um, months ago. And, and just stuck it. And I had made a, a disk image and stuck it on my Drobo that I hadn't touched. Good. I'd make this archive of my computer that was in this pristine condition that I, I didn't touch. So I had to go back like six months to recover this file. And thankfully, nothing had been done since that time. But so there is also a place for archiving as well. All right, that's it. We're going to do a show on backup. It's been way too long. And, and the technology, frankly, has changed enough that there's a lot to talk about. So if you're out there and you've got something brilliant to share with us, please send it in. And uh, next month or so, we're going to do a backup show. Yeah. Okay. Um, you want to get to listener questions? Yeah, we got a couple of questions. Um, a couple of these we got from Twitter. Don't forget that you can send in your questions to us on Twitter by using the hashtag AskMPU. Uh, Dave, David on Twitter 
asked about audiobooks into iBooks, because remember, Apple made some changes to the iBooks app recently, and that's now where you go to play audiobooks. And he said, do you know of a way to get a DRM-free audiobook, AAC or MP3, into iBooks? And yes, you can. And the way you do that is through iTunes. Um, it's, you know, just with a, if you go and you, you take a, a CD and you, you have an audiobook on CD and you want to rip it yourself and you've got it into iTunes, uh, that will transfer into iBooks on, on your iOS device. Um, you can just connect with a cable. I know that sounds like such an arcane idea and, and sync it all over. That can all be done through iTunes. Um, it does have to be DRM free in order to get it into iTunes and then sync it over, but that's how you do that. I also wanted to give a plug for um, Overcast, which is my personal uh, podcast app of choice, but Marco Arment uh, released version 2.5 of Overcast. And one of the my new favorite features of Overcast is if you're a Patreon, which means you basically give them a couple of bucks. And I think if you do an annual, it's like a buck a month. So it's $12 a year, which is an amazing deal. He opens up some additional features, and one of those is the ability to upload files to Overcast. So you could use that to upload DRM-free files and listen to them in Overcast, which means you could do this with DRM-free AAC or MP3 files. You could do it with audiobooks that are DRM-free. You could do it with, I use it for um, the continuing education MP3s that we have to listen to as attorneys. And it's wonderful because that means you can take advantage of all the things that Overcast has, like uh, smart speed and being able to to tweak the the playback settings. So I, I've been using it quite a bit. And one tip I'd add to that, if you're if you're putting DRM free books into iTunes, uh, show information and code it as an audiobook. You can set the media type and setting the media type as audiobook is something a lot of people forget to do. And it just ends up in your music library. So yeah. uh, if you lose it when you put it in, that's probably the problem. So just go to the item in iTunes, command A to select all, and then command I to to get info or just right click on it and say show information. And then there's a media type. It's in one of the tabs. Change it to audiobooks and you're golden. Okay, um, let's take a break to do a quick sponsor and then get back with more listener questions. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by Fujitsu and the ScanSnap line of document scanners. Fujitsu has been a longtime sponsor of the show, and our listeners are always writing us about how much they love their Fujitsu ScanSnap scanners. There simply is no better way to get documents imported to your Mac and iOS devices than connecting a Fujitsu ScanSnap, dropping your documents in the tray, and pressing the blue button. The Fujitsu scanners then rip through those documents and save them to your Mac or iPad or iPhone. The software even has built-in optical character recognition, so as it scans the document in, it'll scan it for text. That gives you the ability to do all sorts of magical things with those documents later, like searching them or even applying rules with Hazel, like we talk about here on the Mac Power users. People often ask me which is my favorite Fujitsu ScanSnap, and I have to admit, I just love my iX500. That's the desktop model. It sits right on my desk and it's full duplex, so it's got a scanner both on the front and the back. So when I put a piece of paper through it, if it's got printing on both sides, it scans them both in one go. The iX500 has a 50-sheet feeder, so you can put big documents in. It's USB 3.0, so it's really fast. In fact, it does 25 pages per minute scanning. It can scan directly to mobile devices, so I can bypass the computer altogether and get it onto my iPhone or my iPad. And if you're that type, it even supports Android. 
The iX500 also has an advanced paper feeding system, so it knows when it gets extra papers and it has a separation roller. It'll tell you, hey, I think I just got two pieces of paper. You may want to fix that. All of this minimizes jams and makes sure you get the best possible scan with your documents. The software is stellar. It has hooks to a whole bunch of productivity applications that we all know and love, like Evernote and card scanning. You just need to buy one of these things and plug it into your Mac and you're immediately more productive. If you don't want the big one, they've got smaller sizes like the S1300i, which will fit in your desk drawer, or the iX100, which will fit in your briefcase. No matter how you want to go about scanning documents, Fujitsu has an answer for you. These guys love Apple products and they continue to shower great support on the Apple line of products with their hardware. To learn more, head over to budurl, B-U-D-U-R-L dot me slash SSMPU. That's ScanSnap Mac Power Users. So budurl dot me SSMPU. If you end up getting your ScanSnap somewhere else, drop them a note on Twitter or send them an email to let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Thank you so much to Fujitsu for supporting the Mac Power Users. Judy wrote in how to, about how to manage iOS storage. She said, can you talk about what this is and how to reduce the amount of space used? It's, and she's got a 10 gigabytes of storage on her iPad and she's cleared out the cache on Safari and she doesn't know, you know, I don't use Twitter and Facebook and what do I do? And she was looking at the iCloud storage button. Well, yeah, know, it's and, not obvious and I, when you look at it. I, I think Judy's question, because I may have truncated it when I put it in the outline, she says, I've got, when I look in iTunes, just documents and and, uh, and setting, you know, that that miscellaneous documents line in, in iTunes that just gives you absolutely no information about what this stuff is. She says it's 10 yeah. gigabytes. What is that? So I, I think a better way to get much more granular control now over understanding where your storage is being used on iOS is to actually do that in iOS itself. And you can do that by going uh, in settings, general storage and iCloud usage. And that's going to give you a breakdown um, based on the different apps, exactly what is using what and depending on you know what size iOS device you have, this this can be you might want to get pretty pretty friendly with this. Now, if you go in there, also you can also see how you're using your iCloud storage. Um, so you can also prune your iCloud storage in there. And there are a couple of things that that may be culprits in there. So, for example, when I look at mine on my iPhone, I'm using about 19 gigabytes worth of music. That doesn't seem out of line. Um, about six gigabytes worth of photos. That's pretty reasonable. You know, Overcast has about a gig. That's not unreasonable. But, you know, you can start seeing some things in there and realize, you know, gosh, how did how did this get so big? One of the, the big culprits can be if you use the standard Facebook app, although Judy said that she didn't. Um, but the the standard Facebook back app, I use the, the paper app on my um, iPhone, but the standard Facebook app has they still haven't fixed this but i don't know if it's a bug or just a, a bad programming but the the caches on that will blow up so anytime you visit a link within facebook or or do anything else within there it stores all of that information so while the facebook app itself is relatively small you can start to see that facebook app ballooning up to be like half a gig or three quarters of a gig or a full gig and sometimes the only way to get that back down to size is to delete it and reinstall it which can kind of be a pain, but it, it will start shrinking things. The other thing is if you start seeing like, you know, the if you go into individual apps and you see like the Keynote app has ballooned up to be like three gigs or so, 
it will if you click in it, it will show you, well, the app size itself is only 500 megabytes. So what is that other stuff? Well, maybe you have a bunch of actual Keynote files that are stored in there that are taking up space. Maybe you didn't realize that you synced a lot of things to Keynote. Um, and maybe there are files that you don't need anymore. Maybe you had them synced because you were giving a presentation a couple of months ago, and now they no longer need to be synced, and you can get rid of them. Yeah, and, and part of this is you don't want to micromanage it too much. I mean, you look like, for instance, games is a good example. Games will always seem like they take a lot of space. And if you look at it, and maybe it's a game you played months ago or your kids gave up on, um, you can get rid of gigabytes of storage that way. Um Photos is depending on how you're using it, but if you're using iCloud photos, photos is always in motion. So uh, photos will shrink and grow uh, to the amount of available space on your phone because that's the way iCloud photos works. And that so can be frustrating you, because it manages itself. Yeah. So and I really wouldn't worry about it if it's big. It's because it's big because you have space and just know that if you start running out of space, it will get smaller automatically. I, you know, I've never had any problem with that, but, but if you go to that, that setting that Katie described, you, it, the, the gear will spin, spin a little bit while it populates with all the information, but that's really the place to go. If you're worried about space. Um, have you used, and I'm just, I'm throwing this out there for our listeners and you, if you know the answer, David, but there are some third party apps that you run on your Mac, but you have to physically plug your, your iPhone or your iPad into the Mac to use them that will base, will claim to like clean the caches and, you know, kind of basically like a clean my Mac, but for your iPad and iPhone and will, will help slim down those types of things. And I know people are, you know, leaning, looking for something like this because, because they're still leaning on 16 gigabyte iPhones. And are there any of those things have always made me very, very nervous for, for iOS. Have, has anybody it, found one of those that's not scary? It, it, that to me, to me, it stinks of snake oil. You know what yeah. I mean? I just feel like you plug it in and really nothing happens. I mean, Apple has done all the optimization that they feel comfortable with on the device. That's the whole point of these iOS devices. I have used some of those apps that like allow you to extract like a text message list. Like I had a case a few years ago, we had to get a text message list off a phone, but I've not done anything that, that claimed to run utilities on it. And, and honestly, I, I just don't think it would work. I guess if you have a big problem, maybe I would take it into an Apple store and ask them, maybe they have some tool there, but, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced without having even tried one of these. I just don't think it would make a difference. Uh, anyway, Sandy wrote in, she says, I wonder if there's a way to save show notes for a particular episode of Evernote. So she wants to take the Mac power user show notes, which are excellent and put them into Evernote. Yeah, and by well, the way, it, we haven't said recently, we should say a big thank you to JT who does the show notes for Mac power users. Yeah. Um, he's a volunteer. He does that all on his own time. We send the show to him and they come back to us a couple of days later with, with lovingly handcrafted show notes in them. Yeah, thank you so much, JT. And uh, we also have an answer for Sandy. Yeah, there's an if this, then that recipe for the Mac Power users. And it will take your show notes and drop them into Evernote. Yeah. We'll put a link into the show notes. Speaking and, of show notes. Yeah. And the beauty of uh, if this, then that is you know, your destination doesn't have to be Evernote. If you want to put them somewhere else, you can. So basically, the if this, then that recipe is you you take an RSS feed. So you take the Mac Power users RSS feed and you dump it into whatever you want. Yeah, you can you can dump it into Instapaper. You can dump it into. I was going to say Pinboard, but I think that's probably a sore subject right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, so, uh, so check that out. And I really like the fact that we were like one of the top, um, for a while there at, if this and that, we were one of the top recipes. I love mm-hmm. that. You know, um, Lane wrote in about printing to PDF and a problem in mail. And, uh, Lane wrote a message to me. He says, look, I'm having problem with that print shortcut and years ago i wrote i think it's the most popular post i ever wrote at max Sparky. it's just a dumb little script that if you hit the command p twice it saves whatever you're doing to pdf and he says it's always worked great but in the newest version of apple mail uh since i've got the um what is it uh, el capitan it's suddenly giving me trouble and uh, i should probably write a post on this in el cap and i think maybe even yosemite apple added in apple mail a menu feature print to pdf you know, so they skipped over all the steps you used to have to do. They actually added a command print a PDF. And as a result, the uh, the little command PP trick I have doesn't work in Apple Mail. So I created a separate little keyboard shortcut. And for me, I just use option command P. And when I'm in Apple Mail, I've just kind of trained myself to use that alternate keyboard shortcut. And it does the same thing. So you can do it. But because they've got a separate menu command, you need to create a separate keyboard shortcut. And by the way, if you haven't done that, you really should, because uh, quicking, making PDFs with just one keystroke, it will, uh, will just save you tons of time every day. Right. So we got quite a bit of feedback about our uh, notes shootout. And one of your biggest complaints, you didn't have many, but one of your complaints about Apple Notes is that you couldn't read the font size. It was too small. Or you thought it was too small. And a lot of people, David, wrote in to say that uh, you're just getting old or got really bad eyesight. I, you know, you I, I'm not really that. arguing with that. I am getting old. I mean, when I was. And we had like, a couple of people t- who wrote in and said that they were in their 80s and had no problem seeing it. So there must oh, be man, something that, with you. And that's just mean. That is yeah. just mean. <laughs> but when I, when you, I was like in my 20s. You tell that Sparky fella. Yeah. When, when I was in my 20s, I used to always have the, the smallest possible font size for everything. And. I used to wonder what was wrong with all these people. Why do they even have settings to make it bigger? That, you know, mm-hmm. that was me 20 years ago. And now it's just hard to read that, that native screen. But uh, we had some help. Uh, Steven wrote in uh, and he pointed me to the P list and uh, you can go into the show package contents and go to the P list. I don't know if this is on the internet. If not, maybe I'll write it up and you can go in and fiddle with it. Um, it really isn't ideal to have to go into the P list to do this. And, and frankly, it doesn't solve all the problems because there's different, um, there's different, you know, it's, it's rich text. So I've got headings and titles and everything. And why should I have to go be monkeying with all this? It just feels to me like something that, um, Apple could easily fix. We also had a bunch of people write in and say, well, if you just hold down, you know, command plus, and you can make it bigger or go to the fonts menu. But the problem is you have to do that every time on every new note. It's not like a default. We need to have just a nice way to set defaults where we can make it a bigger one if we want. If we're uh, in our 40s and apparently uh, not seen as well as people in their 80s. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, and, and the funny thing is on iOS, I didn't really say this on the show, but on iOS, it's fine. The default font size is fine. I was just last night working in notes alongside Microsoft Word and it was completely easy to read. I just don't know what's going on with Apple notes on the Mac. Maybe it's that fancy screen you got. Yeah, maybe, I guess. I don't know. It just feels like in general, iOS stuff is, is better lately. The software is better and more well thought out than it is on Mac. Right. 
So Eric wrote in with a question for you, David. He said, apparently in the Notes Shootout ex, uh, show, you got very excited because talking about Apple Notes. And you said that you yeah, were I going did. to explain how to I'll get Notes that. out of the Notes app. But you got so excited talking about how you could import things into the Notes app that you kind of left the discussion off and didn't talk about how to get Notes out. Yeah, I think, um, I wonder how many times I've got excited on this show and gone off track. It's, it's probably it's probably happened a few. Yeah, it's probably more than the number of shows we've had. And <laughs> and I feel bad because it's usually my job to bring you back on track when that happens. Yeah, there, there's an, there, somebody came up with a script. It's called Notes Exporter. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. And you just run it and it exports everything to text. Now, this obviously doesn't handle all your rich media. But if, you know, if you're saying, well, I like text and I want the ability to, to bring it to ground zero of text, you run this thing and it, it pops them all out as text files. And I did it as soon as I um, started thinking seriously about sticking with notes and it worked fine. I haven't run it recently to tell you the truth, but it, it's just great. So uh, there is an answer for you, Eric, and we put it in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Apple builds in many ways for you to import notes yeah. from other places, yes, but they don't build in a way for you to get notes out. Sounds like the Roach Motel complaint I had to get about Evernote for it years. It does sound like the Roach Motel complaint. And, and, and the ironic part is the reason they can have an importer for all your Evernote stuff is because Evernote has built yep. um, an API to get your stuff out of Evernote. So uh, pot calling the kettle black right here on Mac go. Power users. Speaking of Evernote, uh, Paul and many, many other people wrote to tell me that I said that Evernote only supports one level of hierarchy for notebooks. Well, actually, they have a feature called Stacks that allows you to group notebooks together, but only into one additional level of hierarchy. And you know what? I knew this. I use stacks. I have a bunch of stacks because I like notebooks we, within notebooks. We use stacks in the Mac Power we do. Users folder. I together. like notebooks within <laughs> notebooks within notebooks. But I guess in my mind, notebooks within notebooks is not notebooks is not, you know, a hierarchy. That's just normal. Um, so yeah. I, it, it just completely slipped my mind. But um, yes, you can put one level of notebooks within a stack of notebooks, but you can't put a notebook within a notebook within a notebook within a notebook within a notebook. That's it. Just you know what I like most most about the feedback to that show is it's it's everybody has as we said in the show there are real benefits and detriments to each one of the solutions we covered and 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 thankfully they the benefits and detriments complement each other if you don't like something about one there's probably another one that has the thing you like yeah. um and we had a lot of good feedback from people saying hey I really like this one because of that one thing it does and everybody's not all hung up on you know. My my machine is better than your machine. My system is better than your system. Everybody, you know, we've got this abundance of riches now. So you can handle notes just about any way you want on the Mac and and the iOS. And that's pretty great. Yeah. So Tom, who's very active in our Google Plus group, uh, put together an interesting guide comparing Evernote and OneNote. And we'll put a link to that in our, our uh, show notes for you. But I thought that was interesting because we, we talked about Evernote a good bit, and we did talk about OneNote as well, but um, probably not quite as much as we talked about some of the other solutions. So if you're interested in a little more, um, learning a little more about OneNote or sp specifically how it uh, stacks up to some of the other competition that we talked about, uh, definitely check out Tom's post, and we've got a link to that in the show notes as well. All right, we've got a lot more general feedback, and we're going to get to that right after this break. 
So I want to take a quick moment and talk about our sponsor, 1Password. You know, we talked a little bit in this episode about how things are getting a little less safe out there for us on the Mac. We used to take these things for granted, but... Despite all this, I still maintain that the single best thing that you and your family members and your office mates can do to up your security game is to have strong, unique passwords that you use across all of your different websites. And we're all guilty from time to time of having that same password that we reuse across different sites and maybe just have a couple of different variations. And there's really no excuse for that anymore because once something gets compromised, then you're at risk for having multiple sites get compromised. And it may be through no fault of your own. Well, 1Password, you don't have to worry about that anymore because 1Password is going to remember everything for you. So not only can you take all of your logins for your various sites and put them in 1Password, but 1Password will help you create strong and unique passwords across the sites. And it will let you know if you're using the same login across multiple sites and perhaps suggest that you might want to change that to use more secure logins. You can store all of these logins and have access to them with, you guessed it, one strong, unique password. Now, 1Password does more than store logins. They can store information about your bank accounts, your credit cards, uh, your software licenses. All of this stuff can go into 1Password so you don't have to worry about it anymore. And you might say, well, then how am I going to get all that stuff out of 1Password and into the various websites? That's what's great about 1Password. They have extensions both on the desktop and on mobile that are automatically going to save and fill in your credit card information, passwords, addresses, and more all with a single click. You just have to put in your one master password and you are good to go. And all of this information is going to be available cross-platform on all of your devices, whether it's Mac, iOS, Android, Windows, you name it, because it's going to sync through iCloud or Dropbox. And the team at 1Password, they just keep innovating because they've recently introduced 1Password for teams and for families. So you don't have to be the only one that has all of your information secured with 1Password. You can share the love amongst your family members and colleagues as well. So if you're worried about people in your place of business or your family members, you can introduce them to 1Password and make sure that they're protected as well. You can even be the administrator of the 1Password for teams or families and make sure that they're implementing good password policies that not only protect your family, but protect your team and your business as well. So you can go check all of this out over at onepassword.com. Get information about 1Password for an individual user or for teams and families. And we want to thank 1Password for their kind support of Mac Power users. So Nelson wrote in about additions to our 20 under 20 list. Actually, we had several people write in with some additions. And uh, one that he brought up is an app that I had not heard about called Spectacle. Did you check this out? Uh, I've looked at it, yeah. Yeah, so it's an app that's for window management in OS X. He says, keyboard-based and free. So, boy, that's really in the 20 under 20 list. Um, yeah, so we'll have a link to that in the show also. Yeah, spectacleapp.com, and we'll have a link. And another one that we have heard about that we didn't include on the list, but maybe it deserved, and it's Huff Duffer. Have you played with that one? Much I game? love Huff Duffer. Love, love Huff Duffer. So I basically, thought you were. I thought yeah. you were a Huff Duffer fan. Basically, if you're listening to the show, clearly you know what podcasts are and hopefully you enjoy them. But what Huff Duffer is, is it's like Instapaper for podcasts. So we know that you clearly subscribe and listen to every episode of Mac Power Users. But perhaps there are other shows that you see one-offs of that you you don't want to necessarily subscribe to the entire show or you don't want to commit to the entire show. But you want to listen to this one here or that one there or or one here and one there. So what HuffTuffer does is it basically allows you to create your own podcast feed where you just listen to one-off podcasts. So it's a it's a 
bookmarklet or it's a, they've got their own extension now where when you find a podcast that you want to listen to or something that has an audio feed that you want to listen to, you can huff duff it and it will add that to your own podcast subscription. And just keep in mind, these are public though. I think they can be searched. So don't huff duff anything that you don't want other people knowing about. And it will save it to an RSS feed that you can then subscribe to in your podcatcher. And then that single individual episode will download so that you can listen to it, which is wonderful. And so I've used Huff Duffer for a long time to listen to one-off podcasts. But what I did not know was Nelson let us know about um, an, an add-on that you can use with Huff Duffer called Huff Duff Video that will let you take audio files from videos, which is nice. great. So I've yeah. had links to both of those in the show notes. Videos, by the way, did you did you get the digital version of the movie? I did get the digital version of the movie. In fact, I've got a, a viewing scheduled for this evening. Yes, nice. I haven't watched it yet. I had some projects I'm finishing, but I'm going to this weekend. Yeah. All right. Uh, we had an audio comment from Flo about uh, contact account annoyance. Yeah, so here he is. Hi, Katie and David. I just listened to your contacts episode 306 and wanted to add another pitfall that regularly drives me nuts when dealing with the default contacts app. When you have multiple accounts configured, say one on Exchange and one on iCloud, there is no way to tell a new card that I'm adding on my phone in which container it should go. So what I'll always do is add a new item to my OmniFocus inbox to move that contact to the right account when I'm at my computer, which is super annoying. I have to check out one of those other apps to figure out whether that's possible with them. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Regards from Bavaria, Flo. Yeah, so this is an annoyance on on iOS and even on the Mac, although it's a little bit easier to fix on the Mac. When you add a contact, there's no way to say, add this to my iCloud account, add this to my Google account, add this to my Exchange account. It just gets added automatically to your default account. And if you go into settings and mail contacts calendars, you can set up what you want your default account to be. But you you can't on a case by case basis say create a new account and or create a new contact and add it to iCloud or create a new contact and add it to Google, which if you keep separate you know home and work based contacts means that depending on which one you've got set up or which account you've got set up as your default account can mean that you've got a, a contact for work in your your personal account or vice versa, and that is an annoyance. I agree, and I don't have a solution for it. You know what Flo was saying is that he. He ends up, you know, setting an OmniFocus task saying, I just made this new contact, go fix it later. But I, I don't know, David, do you know of any way to, I, I know on the Mac, it's pretty easy to just take a contact from one account and drag and drop it to another. But I don't know of any way on iOS to do that. I think, I think the way to do it is by Interact. I'm yeah. pretty sure you can do it in Interact. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> silly little things like that, or, or even like, uh, you know, moving a contact into a group is another thing that should be possible you know, without having to open the app and do all these shenanigans. But that's the reason we did that show because there's, there's other options out there and sadly uh, you need them. Right. Uh, James wrote in and told me something that honestly, I did not believe him when he sent the email and I was prepared to write him an email and saying, no, James, you're wrong. Here's a link that proves it. And what I wrote back and said is, oh my gosh, you're right. This is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but James told me that a couple of months ago, he moved to a new 13-inch MacBook Pro with Retina, which is his first Mac. And because it's his first Mac, he set up Office 365 and configured Outlook as his email client. But unbelievably, Outlook for Mac 
does not support CalDAV or CardDAV. So by moving from Windows to Mac, it's actually removed his ability to use iCloud contacts with Outlook. Is that not amazing? And it's so yeah. I looked it up. Sure enough, there's a support article from Microsoft that says Outlook 2016 for Mac is not compatible. Uh, I mean, it's compatible in that it will fetch mail from iCloud because, yeah, it's just an IMAP account. But uh, if you want to use uh, CalDAP, you want to use your uh, iCloud um, calendar or contacts, not going to be able to do that right now with Outlook 2016. Let's let's hope that there's an update soon that addresses that. You know, it, just, it seems like, I don't know what's going on at Microsoft. I mean, this is another example of where, you know, the Mac team seems to be a little bit behind over there. But yet now, now Outlook is, does he, on iOS. And I, I realized yeah. that that was an application that was... Um, you know, heavily influenced and borrowed from other applications that they acquired. Yeah. So you can do it on iOS, but you can't do it on, on the Mac. And now, now if he had hooked this up, it would have worked, I guess, if he went through the native contacts app, but that's not what he wants. He wants to be an outlook. He wants to use outlook because as we yeah. comfortable with, that's what he used before, but he wants to yeah. use his iCloud stuff. I don't know what to say. That's, that's embarrassing, honestly. Yeah. It's like the one thing that, you know, these apps do is import these files. I, I, how how long has it been since there's been, oh, anyway, I've said enough. Well, but. and these are standards. It's not like it's, you know, an Apple proprietary file. Yeah. 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 Okay. We talked about the Christmas card list, the yes. infamous Christmas card list problem. And well, we heard and from a listener. On I've We've heard from a bunch of people about Christmas card lists because this is a common problem. A lot of people want to make Christmas card lists on their Macs without having to handwrite out address labels. So a lot of yeah. people have this issue and a lot of people have different workarounds for it. So uh, the first one we got was from Dennis. Hi, Dave and Katie. In your recent show on contacts management, Katie described the difficulty of creating a Christmas card list. I too have struggled with the annual Christmas card list problem ever since I started using a computer for the job. I go back to the days of writing Visual Basic to solve the problem in Outlook. My current workflow is quite effective, though, so I thought I should pass it on. It is for power users in the sense that it enables you to get exactly what you want, but at the price of some upfront investment in thinking and learning. My basic plan is that I export the addresses I want to use into an Excel spreadsheet. The addresses are defined in a contacts group so that that's how you set which ones you want to use. Exporting is most easily done with a flexible program called Export Address Book, available in the App Store for about five bucks. And then once the addresses are extracted, you can use Microsoft Word Mail Merge to generate labels or envelopes uh, precisely as you'd like them. Using Word is power user territory for sure, but I found the power to be worth the investment in learning. Now, lastly, how do you get the name right? Uh, because for Christmas cards and similar mailings, you often want to use a single address for a couple, a family, or an organization. Um, so I chose a single contact to represent that family, and that is the contact included in my group uh, that I export. 
And for every such contact, I add an extra field in the card containing the text that should be used for the, quote, name. Uh, so let's say I'm a good friend of Daisy Sparks, and I want to send her a card. The extra field would contain text such as Daisy and David Sparks, or Mr. and Mrs. David Sparks, or the Sparks family, or whatever I choose. When I export the address list, I export that special field rather than the name of the contact. You do have to create this special field for every card that you want to send, but it allows your addressing to be individualized and personal for each one. And they'll still be there next year, so you only have to do it once. So this is kind of another variation of the take your contacts, you know, create a group in the contacts app, take them out of the contacts app and, you know, get them into Excel. But this, you know, we, we'd had some people talk last time about take them out of the contacts app, get them into Word, and then just reformat them the way you want to there through mail merge. But this seems to be a more permanent solution if you're willing to take the time to, to set up that solution. Yeah. And I got thinking as I was listening to him, is there a way to make that additional field um, permanent in every contact so you don't have to go and manually add the field for every one you want to do? And um, Actually, I'm, we have a comment about that from Fran. Should we just skip to that? Yeah, let's do that. Hi, Katie and David. This is Fran. I am listening to the feedback show, and you're talking about the contacts and putting a custom field into the contacts so that you can have a label name like the Sparks family instead of David. Well, you don't have to go into each contact and do it. Export into a CSV, open it up in Excel, add a column, and then just zip down the column and uh, annotate, you know, put the labels in. Boom, done. Now all we need is a way to import that back into the contacts book. You could just do a one-time batch process, and even the ones where you haven't edited it, edited it will have a custom field. Love the show. Thanks so much. Boom. Done. I, I like that. boom. I like that. I like the sound effects. Thank you, Fran. <laughs> the, um, I do think that, you know, that's the common sense way to do this stuff is just like, okay, put it in Excel, go through and then annotate, then keep that file. And the next year you make that your starting point. Maybe you import some more. If you made some new friends over the year, you want to add to the list, but you know, listening to all of this, I, first of all, I'm always, you know, impressed by how smart our listeners are that they've got all these workarounds, but also it's like, come on, Apple. I mean, this, it's a little ridiculous, Does, isn't it? Doesn't Tim Cook have some friends and want to send out Christmas cards? Yeah, t- I mean, you know? they send, yeah. Maybe they don't. You know, I mean, it just feels to me like, wow, this is something that should be solvable in the app. It should not require us to be going to Excel and doing all this craziness. Yeah, you know, it is. It's sad because every year I get fewer and fewer Christmas cards. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, did we but, get all that stuff? Well, there is one more got- um, because if you want kind of a, a simpler solution. Um, Helma wrote in and told us about um, a, a software product from a company, B-Light Software. They have a software product called Labels and Addresses. And it sounds like if you don't want to do all this hacking and you know exporting to Excel and mail merge and moving it back in and all of that stuff, you can just buy a software package that will do this for you. It's, it's about uh, 40 to 50 bucks. 
And um, she, they, I've had a number of people who have wrote in and tell me that they use it to create their Christmas card labels. And so I figure once about two or three people write in and tell me about it, it's it's probably something worth mentioning and it works. Um, they can even put a nice little tree image on their label or create lists from contacts. And so if you want to print a single label, it can do that too. So like if you're like four down on the second row, you can start there so you don't have to mess up a whole sheet of labels just to do one or two labels. Which yeah, is nice. that's nice. I've never had good luck with the label software like Avery had a few years ago at Macworld. That was their big announcement. We're we're going to embrace the Mac. And we're going to have this great software in it. it yeah, never that didn't worked. work out. Never well. seen. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, to me, I've got to a point now where I've made a couple templates in pages where, you know, they fit the labels that I always buy. And and then I just do it kind of manually, really. But the. um. OK, Um. We've got more stuff. Uh, do you want to no, let's, uh, uh, move let's, it? Let's go ahead and finish our, we've got a couple of more uh, workflows and tips. Let's just finish those out real quick. Um, Mike's yeah. got a kind of a weird one, but if you're, if you're hitting this bug, it's definitely something to keep in the back of your mind to think, huh, that might be it. Uh, Mike had a weird issue with disappearing disk space. And here's how he finally solved that. So here's Mike. Hey, Dave and Katie, this is Mike from Forney, Texas. I had a problem on my MacBook Pro of disappearing disk space. And what I mean is, over time, the available free space would consistently drop without me really doing anything. I wasn't adding programs, files, downloading a lot, anything of that nature. It would just go away. I eventually went from 300 gigs free to only 130 gigs free over a period of time. Um, I did some digging. I even went to an Apple Genius Bar and uh, was not able to get anywhere. But I finally found on the Apple forums a solution to my problem. Uh, The long and short of it is... When Time Machine works on a uh, Mac laptop, it will save various snapshots of the system. And these are occasionally deleted, but sometimes they are not completely deleted. Now, that may not be the exact right term, but the point is is it still has them on the drive when they should have been deleted. And there's some terminal commands you can use to actually recover that space from the hidden folder where these uh, backups have been trashed but not actually deleted. Um, I'll include a note to the um, uh, the link on the Apple forums where the terminal commands are described. Uh, and of course, when using the terminal, you need to be cautious and know what you're doing. But they're relatively straightforward, and I was able to recover all of my missing disk space. I went from only 130 gigs free all the way back to 300 gigs free. So I hope this is helpful. Um, I I don't know if any of your users have experienced this, but it was a rather um, difficult problem for me to solve, and I'm thankful that uh, now it's taken care of. Uh, Thanks so much. I enjoy the show, and I uh, hope that uh, you'll have many, many more years of great success with Mac Power users. Well, thanks, Mike. And can you imagine losing 170 gigabytes that Yikes. requires a terminal command to recover. <laughs> yeah, how many people out there have the same problem and have no clue what's going on? All right. So basically, what's going on is Apple introduced this feature a couple of versions of the OS ago, where if you weren't connected to your Time Machine backup, it's okay because your Mac is going to kind of keep making those backups for you. It basically was related to versioning, where your Mac would version the 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 file and kind of keep those backups for you. And then when supposedly when you reconnected, it would offload those to the time machine. So it was a way to kind of have those time machine backups when you weren't connected to the time machine. And it was primarily designed for laptops that were likely not always connected to the time machine backup. And I guess there's kind of sometimes a problem with those getting deleted. Oops. Sounds like it, huh? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, Tim had one of my favorite comments or favorite submissions of the month. Yeah. Tim uh, wrote in to just remind us, and he's written in to let us know this before. I think he even posted this on our Google Plus community, that Tim keeps a, a Twitter list of all of the guests that we have on Mac Power Users. So I've put a link in the show notes to that uh, list. If you want to follow all of the guests that we have had on Mac Power Users, it's a great list, great group of people, if I do say so myself. Um, so definitely go check that out. Yeah. And Joe's not on it now. I bet Joe Buell's already on it. I bet Joe's on it. So, (laughs) all right. Well, we've got a little bit more to talk about this week, especially some tech that we're playing with because, David, I got a new iPad sitting here. Yes. I want to hear about this new iPad, Katie Floyd. Yeah. The jury's still out on that. But Oh, uh, no. Not that one, too. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Before we we do that, let's uh, let's listen from our uh, take a break and let's do our last sponsor here. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off with the code MPU. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get for a fraction of the price that you'll find in stores. For years, the mattress industry has been a mess. When you want to buy a new mattress, you've got to go to different stores with product names that vary so you can't comparison shop. And then you're supposed to lay on the thing that everybody else has been laying on for five minutes to decide whether or not this $1,500 mattress is the right one for you. That just doesn't work. Casper solved all of these problems by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. We've had one in our house for a couple years now, and we still love it. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Not only is it a superior product, it's also a superior price. Usually mattresses cost well over $1,500. Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin and up to $950 for a king-size mattress with everything in between. It's a quality product at an affordable price and it's made in America. Now, you may be listening and thinking that buying a mattress online sounds a little crazy. It's actually completely sane. It makes so much more sense than going into a store and laying on a mattress for five minutes. With Casper, they send it to your house, and they have a 100-day return policy. Buy your mattress, it gets delivered, and you get to sleep on it to decide whether or not it's the right one for you. This makes buying a new mattress completely risk-free. Like I said, we've had ours for years now. We really love it, and we're slowly replacing all of the beds in our house with Casper mattresses. Because you're a MacPow user's listener, Casper is going to give you $50 off the next mattress you purchase by going to casper.com slash MPU. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash MPU. Use that code to get $50 off a great Casper mattress and get a good night's sleep. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Okay, before we get to you, the the travails and uh, trials <laughs> the, and tribulations uh, of Katie's iPad, uh, my my pick this month is is pretty easy. Um, there's a great app out called Fantastical, and uh, we've talked about it on the show many times over the years. And they came out with a new update, and it's really great. They it's a the two version two point two. It's a free update and. They've added Microsoft Exchange, which I know a lot of listeners have been waiting for, um, and a bunch of new, really useful features. Like m- my personal favorite new feature is uh, they have the ability to show two different time zones on your calendar. So like if you see 
you know, on the left side, it has your current time zone in my case, Pacific. And then on the right side, it could have Eastern or it could have, if I'm talking to upsetting a meeting with Mike Hurley, it could have London. And so but you always keep re- Sparky time and Floyd time in your count. Fantastic. Always, count, right? yeah. always etched on my retina, but right. the, um, it, it's, um, it's great. And, uh, and they added a whole bunch of, of new features to it. If you already own it, uh, go check it out. I did a video for him. It's like, I told him I'd keep it short, but then I started going over all the new stuff. It ended up taking 16 minutes. So sorry oh, about dear. that. But the, uh, but, um, but there's a whole bunch of new features. And like I said, exchange is a big deal. It's got, uh, invitee availability. If, you know, if it supports it, like, you know, Microsoft exchange and Google. So you, if we have an appointment, I can see your availability. Um, just a ton of great stuff and drag and drop preview and, oh man, just a whole bunch of stuff. So go check it out. Um, fantastical 2.2 flexibits.com watch the video and if you've already got it um uh, you should already be getting your update and uh, make sure you spend a little time uh, figuring out all the new tricks you can do with your calendar app yeah this was a nice update you know uh, uh, exchange support was what kept me from using this as my primary calendar for a long time because my office used exchange and i always use BusyCal because uh, they had amazing exchange support built in and um, I'm glad to see that Fantastical is is picking that up too. Uh, we do use Google Google calendars now, so I've been uh, using Fantastical more now. I've always used their menu bar extension, but I I still really like BusyCal for for calendaring. So maybe I'll I'll pop over and and use it more. It's nice to be able to see everyone in my office's availability if I'm trying to schedule something. Yeah, we we thing. and we do have a big calendar show that we've started prep on. It's not done yet, and we want to make sure we see all the latest and greatest before we talk about it. But there's some there's some good calendar stuff to talk about this year, right? But the real big news this month is okay. So so just to bring everybody up to speed, uh, our heroine bought a 12.9 inch iPad. Yes, and decided it was not it just was not the thing, and Correct. I think largely it was it's just too darn big, too big, way too big. Okay. So went back and yes. then uh, then uh, the iPad mini user said, I am going to try the new iPad Pro 9.7 inch. And now you've had it for a while. So well, what's no, going I've on? had it for like two days. I mean, I got it on Thursday. All right. So I had it Thursday and today's Saturday is where we're recording this. Um, so I haven't had a ton of time with it because, you know, I've been working on Thursday and Friday. So I've been been playing with it a little bit. So I got the 9.7 inch iPad and um, it's not horrible. How's that for? No, just... Wow. Wow. That hurts. Man, that's... <laughs> no, it's right, uh... now, right now. Johnny Ive is crying somewhere. He's just yeah. weeping in, in the back of his Bentley. <laughs> right. No, I, so this is, you have to take my review with a grain of salt because you have to understand that I am so emotionally attached to the 7.9 inch iPad mini size and coming away from that 7.9 inch iPad mini just hurts me a little bit. But my time with the 12.9 inch iPad pro taught me that, uh, one of the things that I learned from that is that there's a lot of features of the iPad pro that are really, really nice. Like split screen on the iPad Pro is really useful. And while you can do split screen on the iPad Mini 4, it's, you know, it's it's really, even though my eyesight's not quite as bad as yours, David, it's, it's hard to get stuff done with split screen on the iPad Mini. So much so that I really, I really never used it. And so that was something that I was looking for. And while, you know, I wasn't using the Apple Pencil daily, it was nice to have the Apple Pencil to be able to annotate notes. And the 
The screens were great on all three iPads all around, so that was that was pretty net even. But there were enough things about the the iPad Pro that I liked. It was just the big thing that I didn't like was the size. And so when the iPad 9.7 inch started to be rumored, I thought, well, maybe that's the compromise. I mean, I I know that I love the 9.7 inch size, or excuse me, the 7.9 inch size. But I've, for years, I had a 9.7 inch iPad and managed to get along just fine. I loved those iPads too. So I can probably go back to the 9.7 inch iPad size. So I did. And I tell you, I went all in. Uh, not only did I, did I go back to the 9.7 inch iPad, I, you know, got my quote from a gazelle before the event started. And, uh, today I packed up and took my iPad mini to the post office. So wait a second. It is so gone. You, you've burned your ships. You're you're there. It's gone. I can't get it back. And when I when I stuck the box in the you know how you put it in the little bin with the post office yeah. and you ro- roll it over and it's like at that point it's gone. You know you you got to like hop over the counter and run yeah. back into the post. I thought about it. and I'm like <laughs> oh no. But I'm like no, it's gone, Katie. I was surprised after two days you uh, you sent the old one the, the one in because I I know that that's hard for you. It is. Yeah, that's I, hard. I decided yeah. that I was I was going to make a commitment to the uh, to the nine point seven size, and I'm going to try it. I'm going to keep it for at least a year or so until the next version comes out. Um, and if I I really prefer the mini, then I can always go back at some point later. But there's a lot to like about the nine point seven inch size. Uh, first off, the screen is just beautiful. There is something you know. At first, I really didn't get the True Tone display. It's it's turned on by default, and that's something you don't have, David. Is that True Tone display? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's turned on by default and I actually had to go in and and look and check to see if it was turned on because I was just using it and I was looking and I was like, "Huh, that's a it's a really nice display. It's it's fine." You know, I didn't really notice anything different. But then I went into settings and I saw that True Tone was turned on and really when you turn that True Tone display off, it adjusts and you look at it and you're like, "Whoa. Okay, so that's what I've been looking at all along." And this is what I'm looking at now. And it just, it adjusts to the different room environment that you're in. So right now I've, you know, it's a little bit overcast outside and I don't have any overhead lights on. So the room's a little bit darker. So the display is a little bit warmer and it's a little bit lighter on the eyes. It's it's almost like you've kind of got night shift acti- activated, but but not completely. But yet if I took the iPad outside it or so, if it was- It sounds a, like better than night shift, really. It really is. But if it was a really bright day- or if I was using the iPad outside or I've got, you know, bright light shining in through the windows, then it's going to adjust it differently. Um, I'm not a huge photographer. I don't know how color correction would work on that, but um, it's, it's nice. It's very comfortable to look. It's very pleasing to look at. Part of me has to think that like night shift was an afterthought of true tone. It's like, okay, we're going to put the sensors in these new ones and we need to be able to adjust the color balance. And someone said, oh, yeah, well, if we can do it based on sensors, we could also do it based on a clock. Right. It could have been or it could have been, you know, the True Tone came next and they said, well, what if we put a few more sensors in and we could actually figure out what the what the ambient light was outside and figure it out. So the True Tone is nice. Um, I don't use the speakers that often because most of the time I have my iPad in do not disturb mode. But I did, for example, I, I listened, I went back and I watched the, uh, you know, the, the big news recently is the Tesla uh, is came out with a new car. The I, I'm yeah, I'm not buying one. Model but, three, I think. It's yeah, but I was very something. curious about it. So this morning I watched that um, using the 9.7 inch iPad, 
um, in the the speakers, and it was great. Now, one one warning that I will have for you is that you need to be very careful about the case that you buy. You need to buy a case that is specifically made for the nine point seven inch iPad. I haven't found a case that I'm in love with yet, so I ended up just buying kind of a very inexpensive case off of Amazon. And it fits the iPad, but it's not perfectly designed for the 9.7 inch. It was kind of one of these cases that was uh, manufactured, I think, before the the final version of the iPad came out. And I actually got an, an email from the case manufacturer that said, you know, hey, we now have the iPad in hand. We're going to send you an updated case. Look for it in about 12 days. So I thought that was nice of them. Um, but, you know, just be aware that the the, the sleep-wake um, spe- uh, magnets are in a little bit different place. So the old... Uh, iPad Air 2 cases are not quite compatible, um, and same with the speaker grill, so things to be aware of. Uh, so I'm back in the market now, although I have a fairly you know, inexpensive, it's one of these $6 um, you know, knockoff cases that I bought off of Amazon. I am looking, and, and it's fine, especially when they send me the, the revised one, it will be even better. You know, I am kind of looking for a nice uh, iPad case again. So if you've got suggestions, feel free to to tweet me. That's probably the best way to send them to me and and send them to me. Uh, it's very fast, although the speed of the iPad was was never a problem for me before. But I'm really enjoying split screen as well. I've already used it several times, and when I've been you know looking something up on the on the web and responding to someone on Twitter, uh, I'm finding that I'm starting to incorporate that in my workflow, and that's something that I've never done before. So yeah, I, I just find I use my iPad more a lot more for productive and creation stuff than i ever did before and i think it's because of the bigger screen and the split screen and and apple still i think has a lot of room to go with making this a more productive device but it feels like in the last year they've started to put some real wood behind the arrow on that right now now are you able to carry the 9.7 in your purse because i know for you that was a, a big deal being able to carry the mini around it does it does fit in my purse um so that was that was nice. It's a little bit heavier. It's a little bit bigger, obviously, but it does fit in my. It but does it's, fit in but my it's not nearly as big as the as the oh, one no. I have. No, I yeah. you know I put that picture on my website when I had my review of the iPad Pro in my purse, and it was just laughable. Yeah. Well, um, so okay, so I didn't know that you had sent back the mini. So you have really committed at this point. I've now, committed now. Now, now, what are the new features? Because your mini was fairly new, wasn't it? It was I mean, an iPad was... Mini Four, so it was yeah. it was the newest. Um, so, in terms of new features, really, the only new features I'm getting uh, it's a little bit faster. Although for the types of work that I'm doing, I'm not noticing that. Uh, I'm getting Apple Pencil support. I'm getting the better speakers. I'm getting, I mean, split screen support was something that I always had, but again, based on the size of the screen, it wasn't truly usable on the iPad mini. So to me, that's a new feature, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are the big ones. True tone is in the new display is another feature. Uh, the display is a lot better in bright light, um, even than the mini four, the mini four had a great screen, but it's, uh, the display is even better in bright light. Um, the only downside. That may be part of the true tone, maybe. Yeah. You know. Well, it also has a different coating on it that makes it even less reflective. Generally, the only Downside for me personally is the size, and that's totally a personal preference. You know, just just things like picking up, and I certainly can be used with one hand. You know, using it when lounging it around on the couch, or you know, picking it up in the morning and using it first thing while I'm in bed to read RSS feeds. Uh, certainly, it's doable. I've I've done it for years before. It's it's not a problem. Is it a little? Is it something that I'm a little more used to and a little more comfortable with on the mini? 
Yeah, but it's it's not a problem on the 9.7. I can get used to it again. Yeah. It well, doesn't and, the size doesn't prevent me from doing anything with it, I think. I'll be really curious to see what happens if in a year they come out with a mini that has pencil support and, you know, kind of the pro yeah, version of the mini. That will be tough. Where, where you would go. Yeah, um, I, a lot I of am, people I, asked me about pencil support on the 9.7 inch size. And the Apple Pencil works just the same as it does on the 12 inch size. I guess the question is, you know, the size of the canvas that you're going to use. I think artists are probably going to want as big of a canvas as possible. I think um, for my uses, which are basically just going to be, you know, small annotations and maybe, you know, a few little notes, I'm not going to be taking pages and pages of notes on this thing. I think I'm actually going to be more likely to use the pencil on this device than I ever would be on a Pro, just because this is a device that it's fairly easy for me um, to take with me and to, you know, hold in one hand and to take notes with another. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, what I'd really like you to do is is the next month, keep track of stuff you're doing on your iPad that you hadn't done before. I, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm curious to see if you start doing more content like creation type work on the iPad because of this new device and report back to us next live show. What yeah, I, I will. I'm debating about the smart cover. You know, initially I didn't really care for the feel of the smart cover on the 12.9 inch. So I didn't even look at it. It also added quite a bit of weight. But, you know, Jason Snell came out with a review of the 9.7 inch smart cover and he is pretty finicky about his keyboards. And he said it wasn't bad, which yeah. makes me go, hmm. Well, I like mine on my big one. And um, yeah. I'm pretty useful. Uh, but like I said, I'm not picky. I'll type on anything. The uh, Either way, uh, it is interesting to see that Apple now has two iPad Pros and the iPad Air. I, I can't help but feel like this is heading the direction of kind of like the Mac where there's a Pro line and, a, and like a standard line. Right. And eventually um, that gives them the ability to charge more and frankly put more good stuff in a more expensive iPad and then have one that's more affordable so they can kind of hit both sides of that market. Right. And it just feels like to me, I can say that way. I think the next step would be to remove the air designation. You would just have the iPad and then the iPad pro and you could get, you can get them in three different sizes. And every year the, the pro, the new pro will have the latest and greatest stuff. Right. We'll see. All right. Well, I will definitely uh, let uh, you know uh, how it goes. Yeah. And I also think in a couple months, we're going to have WWDC. I would be, I would be surprised if we don't see a lot of improvements for iPad productivity type stuff in the next version of iOS 10. Oh yeah. I can't wait to see what happens with iOS 10 and what other APIs developers get access to, to do even more yeah. with these devices. Uh, Apple has clearly with this last event, especially laid down the gauntlet that the iPad pro is designed for some people, not all, but for some people to be a laptop replacement. Yeah, I don't, I don't really buy that, to tell you the truth. Well, I mean, if, <laughs> if you're used to using a Windows computer, switching to an iPad, it's there's too many hurdles at this point in my mind. But we're getting there. All right. Well, I think that's going to be about enough for us today. Thank you for everyone who joined us in the uh, live stream. Uh, you can find more information about us at our website at relay.fm slash mpu. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors for this episode, Linode, Fujitsu, 1Password, and Casper. Uh, please show your support of our show by supporting them as well. 
And if you want to join us on a future live show, um, you know, we are putting out a call for guests. So send us an audio pitch. You can send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Keep your pitch to two minutes or less, just like the audio comments. Uh, We record these typically on the first Saturday of the month at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, if you want to join us. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you want to talk about, and we'll, we'll go from there. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. 